0: This Crowdcast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Patheos, available now on Amazon.
1: Hey there, this is Brandon Dragan, the author of the novel The Wages of Grace. I just can't seem to get enough of Second Cup with Keith. It's theological caffeine for my brain.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, as always. And uh, once again, we have a special episode where I'm joined by um, some friends of mine who are also co-authors and contributors to a very special book um, that we put together with Choir and Patheos called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. And really proud of this book, really excited about it. Um, In a nutshell, it's essentially the idea for the book was to find people of different faiths um, who are willing to talk about what they love most about a faith that isn't their own. Um, Because typically people, you know, criticize or want to argue or debate about faiths that are different than their own. And so we thought it would be really interesting and special and um, encouraging and inspiring to people to kind of turn the tables on that and um, have people talk about things that they have seen in other faiths or even in other people of other faith that have um, that it's enriched their own faith practices. And so I'm joined today by uh, three of our many other uh, contributors to this project, uh, Gregory Smith, Caleb Gilliland, and Fred Stella and i just realized accidentally this is completely accidental this is this was in no way uh planned but i was i was looking up in the book to mark the chapters to talk to each of you about your chapters i noticed that uh, caleb you, you you contributed chapter 7 um greg you contributed chapter 8 and fred you contributed chapter 9 so we're going to go in sequential order <laughs> I suppose. Uh, let's start off just by kind of giving us a little bit of background about yourself uh, and maybe a little bit about um, why you wanted to be a part of this project. So I guess we'll start uh, going chronologically. Uh, we'll start with Chapter 7. Caleb, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and why you wanted to be a part of this project.
1: Yeah, thanks for, so much for having us on. So basically, I my, the reason I want to do the project is I grew up evangelical in the South. And I became a Baha'i when I was in high school. And in some ways, i spent either my active career um, or kind of thinking like, so I, I did marketing for a long time. And so I either spent that thinking in the background and doing sort of, you know, side projects um, that eventually led me to want to change careers and do a, a PhD in um, sort of Christian Muslim theology. Mm. And then eventually, you know, got to the point where I could do that. And so I moved to the UK and specifically Edinburgh to do the a, a degree here so that I could uh, basically write about some of the, the theological insights that I, I hopefully have had and uh, be able to share some of my experiences. So the point in writing the chapter for the book was just to talk about my, my childhood and basically the way that I saw the world through an evangelical lens and the way that it led me into a, a Baha'i way of looking at the world and how I still see the world through both of those lenses sort of simultaneously, even while being a Baha'i.
0: Well. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, you're in Edinburgh, you said, uh, the Scotland, right? That's right. So man, you went through quite a few changes, uh, geographically as well as theologically in your life. Um, what, what made you want to do the, uh, the PhD that you're doing? So it's interesting that you chose Islam, uh, rather than something else. Why was that?
1: Yeah, good question. So, From a Baha'i standpoint, the rest of the world religions or all the world religions together make up a single story from God. Mm -hmm. And so growing up Christian, like, you, you, okay, so the way the Baha'is look at it is the most recent revelation from God is that of the Baha'i faith, and uh, Baha'u'llah is its founder. Before that is Islam in recency, and then Christianity and Judaism, at least in the Western line, line of religions. There's also a connection with Hinduism and Buddhism. Like uh, In my limited lifetime, <laughs> I just don't have time to look into the Eastern uh, set of religions quite as much. I'd love to have an opportunity to do that at some point. Right. So, But from a, a, a Baha'i perspective, these, these different religions should all kind of make sense as far as being different chapters in the same story. Mm-hmm. But coming from a, a Christian background, I could feel points of friction, especially between Christianity and Islam. And so I've always been interested about that. To some extent, I accept Islam on the basis of faith because I I believe in Baha'u'llah, and therefore like he he has a certain authority to uh talk about those like to include other religions in the sort of scheme, if that makes sense. In the mm-hmm. same way that even if you, you're from a Greek background and you decided that Jesus was Lord, you are you have to kind of accept Judaism on faith, even if it didn't make any sense to you, even if Judaism wasn't the background of your people. And so in some ways, like it's trying to incorporate these together. So for me, I was always interested in these points of friction and especially like coming from Paul. So if you've ever gone to like an interfaith gathering, Christians and Muslims, they're always nice to each other, you know, but they kind of wind up talking past each other. And part of that is because, you know, they're trying to be nice. They're not trying to get to any of the sore spots. But when it comes to theology, so many of the perceived sore spots, like the justification by faith alone the idea of the Trinity, um, the Incarnation, and and many other things. like Sort of secretly, not so secretly, Muslims blame the differences that they find irreconcilable at Paul. And Mm -hmm. for a while, I did as well. The Baha'i writings say really nice things about Paul. Um, I I think Abdu'l-Baha, who is the son of the founder, called Paul Jesus' most faithful servant. So in some ways, like from a Baha'i perspective, it's very explicitly clear that Paul is a good person. You can't really ignore him. Um, In in Islam, it's not so clear. So the Quran talks about itself as being a confirmation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it doesn't say anything about Paul, and it doesn't really talk about Christian doctrines that much. And so for probably historical reasons, I I personally think it was the clash of empires between sort of the early Arab caliphate and then the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. They were at war, and you don't like the other side. And so even though your scripture says that... You know, it confirms the other scripture of of the people that you're fighting. You're trying to rally your side behind you. You're trying to kind of cast doubt on the legitimacy of your opponents. And so I think it's that kind of dynamic that made, even though the command is very clear cut about these things, it made in practice to where people didn't trust the Bible at all for for religious authority. And so you had this kind of break that happened. So I'm just interested in trying to find the sources of these breaks and try to find theological solutions. Um, and it turns out since the seventies, there's been this thing called the new perspective on Paul and new Testament scholarship that really looks at these, like these issues, especially these doctrinal issues that are in Paul very differently. And I think those are pretty helpful for interfaith reconciliation.
0: Right. Now this, all this stuff is really fascinating to me. I I get into this too. Like you and I could probably just have a separate conversation, just about all everything you just talked about. I, I find it all really interesting. Um, in my in my own personal experience, um, my wife and I did some work for about a, about a year and a half, two years, with uh, an organization called Peace Catalyst International, and they they primarily work to help Christians, uh, and and evangelical Christians, I think, are, are more their specific target, to um, sit down. Usually, they, they call them peace feasts. It's just to get Christians to sit down with Muslims. And have, share a meal together and have normal human conversations. And when they do that, what they figure out is they have a whole lot more in common than they realize. And what I think think is most fascinating and what I learned so much through my friendships and connections and relationships with with Muslim people um, was that the thing that Christians and Muslims have in common is Jesus. And And most Christians are really shocked about that. Like when you tell them, or when a Muslim says, oh yeah, we have a couple of chapters devoted to Jesus and Mary in the Quran, and that Jesus is actually mentioned more times than Muhammad <laughs> as like, yeah. what? You know, those are big shocks. And so when you realize that the common ground that you have is Jesus, now again, they they don't agree 100% on when they start to talk about who Jesus is. Um, and typically that's because Christians have the Trinity and the, de- the deity of Christ and all that. Um, that's where they kind of part ways. But if they can center their conversations around just their mutual appreciation of Jesus, they have some, I've had some incredible conversations with people uh, with Muslims and Christians on that topic. So uh, I'm really fascinated by that. And so, yeah, um, best of luck to you on what you're doing. And I can't wait to to hear more about that. Um, And I'll come back to you in a second and talk to you about your chapter specifically, but um, uh, Gregory, I think you were next uh, chronologically. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, why you wanted to be a part of this project.
2: Yeah, Keith. Um, I was raised, I'll, I'll say, Um <clears throat> We were members of a Baptist church, but there were always the, the Pentecostal camp meetings and things that we would go to as I was growing up. Uh, really, uh, mom wanted to be a Pentecostal and dad wanted to be Presbyterian, so the Baptist church was somewhere in the middle. right and uh so i grew up baptocostal uh from there uh i went to um virginia commonwealth university got a degree in religious studies uh so that's world religions Mm -hmm. um my pastor at the time was concerned that i would be studying these other religions and giving Mm -hmm. them you know equal footing to christianity uh that was bothersome to him um Then from there I went to uh, went to seminary, and I went to Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond, and that was a progressive seminary. Uh, I was warned against it. Uh, (laughs) Two warnings
0: that you already have
2: ignored. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, But I I just mentioned those warnings uh, to give you a flavor for uh, the fact that embedded within me has has been both um, that that conservative perspective, as well as a more progressive perspective. And so um, as I was growing in faith and and during my uh, formative times, um, I really had both of those voices Mm -hmm. in my head. Uh, My parents had lots of friends with people from other faiths. Uh, we We were very open to those kinds of things. And yet there was the other voice saying, hey, you better watch out. Uh, if you form relationships with people of other faiths, uh, you know, that's what that's what missions is all about, you know, is um, how can yes. we convert people of mm-hmm. other faiths? And if you develop a relationship with someone, well, the reason you're developing that relationship is so that you can convert them. Right. Um, and and that was that was the perspective that I had and, and my seminary uh, certainly did its best to try to knock that perspective out of me uh, being a more progressive seminary. But both of those voices were present within me as I was growing in faith. So I went from there to pastoring um, churches. I pastored uh, several churches within Virginia Baptist State Convention and, um, you know, huge focus on missions uh, during that period of time. Um, And, One of the things that that I was asked to do uh, was, because I was young, as I was asked to work with the youth of our association. Uh, So it wasn't just the youth of our church, it was the youth and and the parents of our association. Uh, And one of the things that the parents were concerned about back in the early 90s uh, was the rise of the New Age movement and the occult and the satanic panic was was big at that time. So the parents all wanted to know all about this evil New Age movement and how it was trying to steal their children. Um, and I, during that period of time, responded from a perspective of "of this is a dangerous thing. Uh, and I did a lot of research, or what I thought was research, um, reading authors, Christian authors. Right. About their their perspective of quote the new age movement, mm-hmm. um, and eventually came to realize it was all it was all just um, propaganda. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. only way to develop a relation to to learn was to develop a relationship with people who actually practiced other religions.
3: Yeah,
0: imagine um, that! Like actually getting yeah. to know those people personally, and rather than just reading someone else tell you
2: about them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was there was that, and then there was also a Taoist uh, kind of um, training that I had early on uh, that that fed into my Christianity as well. So my chapter was about Taoism mm-hmm. and neopaganism and the way those two things uh, influenced my faith.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Really good. And we'll we'll come back to, I want to hear more about that in just a second. Um, Fred, uh, you are next. And so again, same question. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to uh, be a part of this project.
4: Well, thank you, Keith. So yes, uh, my name is Fred Stella and I'm a Pathios contributor uh, from the Hindu perspective. And uh, the reason, excuse me, <laughs> That's okay. Forgive me. I've had a call for a couple of days. Okay. Um, the reason that I wanted to be a part of this, well, first of all, I was asked. Mm-hmm. And and I like anybody likes being asked because, you know, they're under this illusion that you have some ability. Uh, and And so, you know, that was nice. And I thought, well, you know, if I can fool them into thinking they're right, then why not? <laughs> right. Uh, and and uh uh second of all uh I thought the the subject was really good. I thought that with my background that I could uh be a fairly reasonable uh contributor mm-hmm. to this um, and uh there's another reason too that is is escaping me at the moment, but maybe it'll come to me so uh my background uh, uh I was raised Roman Catholic and uh i started studying hinduism at the age of 15 i formally embraced the dharma as we say when i was in my early 30s and i've been very active in the hindu community ever since hmm. i am ordained uh in a position called pracharak at my local hindu temple pracharak uh means in this case outreach minister
3: hmm.
4: and it i want to be very clear because We've been using that term. We wanted to be able to give me a, a Sanskrit term, but we wanted also it to translate to something that people, Westerners, could relate to. So we came up with outreach minister. Uh, but I want to be very clear that part of my position is not to grow the community, where mm-hmm. in, in, especially in Protestant uh, and evangelical uh, circles, outreach minister, that, that tends to be one of the jobs. Right. and since hinduism is not a missional religion we 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 do not evangelize we don't try right. to bring people into the fold although they're welcome actually the only people that we we are allowed to evangelize is mormons really but that's yeah but that's only because they are the best tithers who wouldn't <laughs> want, who wouldn't want mormons Right. We don't even we don't even ask them to change their theology. Just hey, join the temple and start tithing, and very, <laughs> you're one very of the family. I like that. <laughs> Obviously, I kid. Right. Um, uh, so anyway, but my my job uh, uh, does entail uh, more of a, a teaching position. I do mm. other things, uh, also counseling, meditation instruction, things like that. Uh, I'm also on the uh, a National Leadership Council of the Hindu American Foundation, headquartered in Washington, D.C., which is an advocacy org. And I do a great deal of work with them, both nationally and locally uh, in Michigan. I'm I'm in Los Angeles right now, but um, we have an apartment here. But my main residence is in Michigan. So I do a lot of work there. That's where my temple is, the West Michigan Hindu Temple. Hmm. So, uh, So that's me. And um, I wanted to write about the journey I took from Roman Catholicism to Hinduism and uh, describe the respect that I still have for my Roman Catholic roots. Oftentimes when, when people convert, uh, they they really have to leave Everything behind to adopt a whole new theology and a whole new culture, and you know it was like, well, what I was before was wrong. What I am today is right. Mm-hmm. And so why would I want any of that wrong stuff still in my life? Yes, hinduism Hinduism, by and large, does not ask you to leave everything you were at the door before they allow you to come in and, and well, be Hindu. Right. And so, uh, you know, I can, uh, with, with no conflict whatsoever, uh, study Catholics. Well, I can study Catholic wisdom tradition. I can study Islam. I can study Jewish tradition. I can study anything I want. I can bring what, what it matters to me into my life and i uh in my interfaith circles we talk about holy envy mm. and so i can have holy envy um with with any religion okay so yeah. uh, as long as it doesn't develop into you know pathological jealousy we're fine yes. i can i can i can say boy oh boy uh muslims who commit to praying five times a day is is wonderful yeah. i can say uh, the ability oh i often I often say uh, Hindu children do not grow in in the United States, probably in India too actually i 'm sure they do not grow up with the scriptural foundation that Protestant kids do in the united states right they 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 just uh, uh, I would say that a sixth grader who is really raised in the tradition. Of, of Christianity, uh, would be able to defend his faith, so to speak, mm-hmm. much better than the sixth grader, the average sixth grader coming from a Hindu home, particularly one uh, if you're uh, ethnically Indian. Um, so so that being said, uh, my chapter is about my journey and the, the respect that I still maintain. And I believe I mentioned in the chapter that Uh, Right now, I'm involved in a fabulous project. I was invited by the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops. And if you're not familiar of the Conference of Catholic Bishops, it's like they are the American Vatican. They give the marching orders to everything Catholic, schools, churches, hospitals. If you're Catholic, you answer to the Bishops' Conference. And they're located in Washington. And they reached out to several of us at the Hindu American Foundation a couple of years ago and said, we want to do with you what we have done with Jews and Muslims, uh, which is to have a years long uh, series of dialogues Mm. that will help each side understand one another the better. Mm. And we started that earlier this year. And uh, so I'm on the, the Hindu team. And our our first our first gathering back in February was absolutely fantastic. Wow. Uh, it really was a, a meeting a meeting of the minds. And it, I'll say a couple of things uh, on that. First of all, there's no I I don't see any action. I don't see any motivation for trying to put square pegs in round holes right. when it comes to theology. Right off the bat, we just know we're different.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I always say, you know, so much religious um, uh, uh, debate is all based on stuff we can't prove. Right. So if exactly. a, Muslim and a, Christian, if a Muslim, Muslim and a Christian are arguing about who what, is Jesus divine, part of the triune God, or is Jesus a messenger, you know, just waiting for Muhammad to happen. Right. Who, why, why are you arguing this? seriously, why are you arguing that? You can't prove it. If you're going to argue about religion, argue about the mundane aspects. And by mundane, I don't mean, uh, you know, sometimes mundane can be pejorative. I don't mean that. I just mean how you interact with society, how you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you want to have an argument with me about Hinduism, okay. You want to talk about, say, Caste discrimination. I'm more than happy to talk about that. I'm more than happy to talk about vegetarianism versus uh, uh, uh omnivore-ism, right? I'm, I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about those things. I really don't want to argue about them, but I'm happy to discuss them and give the Hindu point of view. But in terms of, again, do, do we reincarnate or is there a physical, re, a, a physical resurrection? I don't care.
0: Yeah, we not don't know. Right. And we, yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> exactly. Now, 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 I may ask you, uh, it, anyone here, what does the resurrection mean to you? If the resurrection holds great meaning, I would love to know about that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not out to change your mind. And I would right. hope you wouldn't be out to change my mind. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say one other thing because uh, the, um, Caleb and Gregory are bringing up uh the person of Jesus, the Christian story uh, a lot of times there's uh, we hear about Jews and Christians dialoguing, and often the person of Jesus goes into the mix. who is Jesus uh Caleb in specifically was talking about the understanding of who was Jesus. Most people don't realize that Jesus has inched his way in to the Hindu tradition. So obviously Hinduism is way older than Christianity. He doesn't have an official place in Hinduism. However, in the 19th century, might have even started in the 18th, but let's just say 19th for now, you had, a, a of course, there was an evangelical movement because britain now was their overlords and so mm-hmm. yes there there was this uh this move to uh to convert people well um india is is kind of an amazing place because they they only converted a few however many hindu intellectuals were more than open to reading the bible mm. and having dialogues with the christians and so uh, there was this movement called neo-Hinduism. Again, if it if it didn't start in the 19th century, it certainly uh, blossomed in the in the 19th century, where uh, people were actually trying to trying to find out where could we fit the wisdom of Jesus into our lives. Yeah, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was a perfect example of yes. this. His his nonviolent movement was inspired by both the Hindu scriptures and the Gospels. Yes. Now he never he never changed his theology. He never uh, decided to you know be a Christian, believe in the resurrection or or or, or uh, vicarious atonement or anything like that. But that didn't matter to him. What mattered was the power of, say, the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And 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 so that has continued. In India today, and is now a part of the religious landscape here in the United States. Yeah. So, so uh, the particular sect of Hinduism that I belong to does venerate Jesus not as savior, Messiah, etc., but as more of a, and this is a term I've coined, a Jewish Buddha. Yeah,
0: there you go. Hindu. I think that's right. Yeah, I love that. Okay. And I had heard, I have, I've heard this, and I, I hesitate to say it with authority because I know there's a lot of things about Gandhi that are um, sort of mythology, uh, or you know, rumors mm-hmm. and things like that. But I have heard, I believe this is true, that the last few years of Gandhi's life, that he was reading he, every every day, he would wake up and read the Sermon on the Mount, um, and then attempted to live out, of course, that those teachings of Jesus, as you said, uh, enemy love, uh, nonviolent resistance. Uh, and those kinds of things And he was, he was, I know whether that part is true or not, that he read it every day, I do know it's true that he did. He was highly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount and by the life and the teachings of Jesus and, and did uh, endeavor to live it out. And so much of what he did and taught was inspired by that. Um, and what's funny about that to me is like, I know Christians who don't do that, right? I I don't, I actually, it's, it would be hard to find, to be honest, in my, at least in my experience, uh, growing up as a Christian, uh, including myself, uh, uh, to find a Christian who would say, I read the Sermon on the Mount every day, and I try to put that into practice. So in, in many ways, I would say Gandhi was a Jesus follower, much more so than many Christians that I know.
4: And and then it comes full circle, so to speak, because who was one of Gandhi's greatest disciples but Martin Luther King? That's exactly right. Yep. And did Martin Luther King become a Hindu? No, not, not that I know of. Right? Know. <laughs> even he even made a pilgrimage to India to a Gandhi shrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I suspect. Well, first of all, one thing I know is that Martin Luther King, and you you might know this, you all three might know this. He was way more theologically liberal than most Christians uh, would believe. Yeah, but I would suspect that he still believed in the basic tenets. I would still suspect he believed in a triune God, the yeah. divinity of Jesus, the resurrection of the body and life of the world to come. Amen. I, I, I suspect that that's uh, where he was theologically. But he saw the great power of the, the Hindu teachings that inspired Gandhi along with his own tradition in Christianity. So, yeah. so that, and that is what I'm talking about when, when I say mundane. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know. A lot of times, people think mundane means boring or without value. No, yeah. I'm talking about how it is expressed on Earth.
3: Right. Yeah.
0: I, the way I typically will talk about, it, I think, I think we're saying the same things. Is I, I think that we have too much, especially in evangelical Christian circles, which is where I was raised, uh, too much of an emphasis on orthodoxy, which is all about the beliefs and the doctrines and the theology and arguing, and debating, and apologetics. And I was into that stuff in college um and 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 I think that has become so important we have uh and I say we Christians have um especially in America have downgraded i think what you're calling mundane is what I would call orthopraxy, which is the mm-hmm. practice of the belief like forget what you believe, I mean believe whatever you want but but does that translate into I'm a more loving, kind, giving, you know uh generous person? Um, am, I, am I walking out? Does, does this Do these beliefs um, create some sort of transformation within my life? Uh, I posted something the other day about this, about how uh, I think the real test of Christianity is not whether it's good for you, the believer, uh, and I would say this may be true of any faith, but is it good for people who, who don't follow your faith? Like, is your belief good for your next door neighbor? Is your belief good for your coworkers? Is your belief- mm-hmm good for your, you know, people that that know you or even strangers that you encounter. And I think that's what I wish we had much more of a focus on.
4: I, I would say that is true in any faith. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yep. Right. That that yeah. really should be our goal.
0: Yeah. Love it. Fred, thank you. This was wonderful. I'm going to, I'll come back to you in a second. I want to circle back around here, um, to, um, to Caleb. And, uh, I want to ask, and I'm probably going to ask all of you a very similar question. So, um, you know, again, the whole, the whole idea behind the book was, you know, asking people of different faiths and all of us, all, all four of us here on this call had some origins in a, in sort of a Christian faith, whether it was Catholicism or Baptist, or whatever, whatever our background was. Um, although, you know, many other contributors in the book were, uh, they're Muslims. Um, there's uh Sufi Hindu, you know, all kinds of, uh, back people that started from different starting points. But since we all started from a Christian or a, a Christian-based uh, beginning, I'm curious, Caleb, um, why Why was Baha'i compelling for you? What was it about? Again, the, our chapters are about um, what is it about another faith that we love and appreciate? And and I guess maybe it's two-pronged. So when you were a Christian, what was it that compelled you about Baha'i? But now that you're a Baha'i, is there anything about Christianity that also still compels you?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I say, like, as a Christian, what what was compelling to me about the Baha'i faith was that it gave an answer to the feeling that we sometimes felt, or I think most Christians probably go through a feeling like this, where, like, well, okay, I'm born into this faith, more or less, right? I mean, there is this element that in evangelical Christianity where you need to choose Jesus for yourself. Um, for me, it was like this whole the saving experience, like an altar call kind of thing, right? right. Which I, I I do like. I mean, I think that. You know, in some traditions, perhaps Roman Catholicism and a few others, you're kind of, you're really kind of born, born into your faith. I mean, there's confirmation classes later on, but you know, in some sense, there is a certain magic about infant baptism that allows you to be, to be kind of part of the people of God from the very beginning, which I think is really reassuring and it's kind of lovely to think about. But there is part of me that really does appreciate the the Baptist way of saying, well, you have to make that decision for yourself. No one else can make it for you. So that is something. Where are where they going with this? Oh yeah. So I, I appreciated that fact about the uh, the Baptist faith is that it had that component to it. um So there there was this impetus to take the the spiritual ideas seriously, and you know maybe with eternal consequences, which wasn't always so nice. Yeah. You know. So I came up with that, and then you know it, it gave me the impetus to at some point search out and find out what what the truth was for for. Like religion in general because yeah. you know you have this sense that like okay well we're born into it we're going to be okay probably as long as we accept jesus but other people may not right like right. everyone else potentially could be going to hell for for eternity which isn't such a nice thing and you have the questions of like how do you square that with a loving god and theodicy and, and all that sort of thing so I, I i would say like when i was you know 15 or 16 and i was really investigating the, the faith at that point like mean, you know that was in the background a bit i think i would have at least at that point, I would have been okay, <laughs> unfortunately, with everyone else going to hell if, if that was what was true. Because you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's not, it's not like a nice thought. But at the same time, it's like if God knows more than we do, if God is sort of like outside of us, and that's just what he wants, by definition, it's 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 the best. You know, sure. sort of a uh, divine command theory kind of thing. So it's like I wasn't happy about it, but also, well, if that's how it is, I'm glad that I'm in this camp, you know, for however I got here. Um, so that was part of it and i I did like this idea in the uh the faith the baha'i faith about progressive revelation that it wasn't just like on one hand you had like personal salvation and everyone else is kind of screwed and then on the other hand you have this sort of universalism like god you know jesus jesus happened his sacrifice covered everyone and then just there's nothing you don't even need to respond to it in some ways like it's better if you do but it's just kind of this magic ether that goes through everything and and you know, that's true, but then it also, I mean, if that's true, that's nice. But yeah. on the other hand, it's, it feels like there's no story to it. It feels like there's no progress. You know what I mean? It's just in some ways, like growing up with individual salvation being the goal, like it's sort of outside of time, this, this ahistorical kind of, you know, transaction that happened and it doesn't really like, you don't need anything after Genesis three in the Bible. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, it's sort yeah. of, it's just this algorithm That that doesn't feel right. And then on right. the other hand, the universalism, like, you know, some people I really admire, like David Bentley Hart. And yeah. know, there's always been this Christian tradition of universalism. Yes. Also, it's just sort of like it just it's just thing that happened outside of you and that it doesn't really change the world in some ways. Like, it's not building anything. It's still talking about yeah. the same transaction. It's just who does it apply to? And that never really right. felt satisfying either. And so one thing, like the faith talks about the, the progress of religion and religion this thing called progressive revelation. That God revealed himself to every part of the world, depending on, you know, the time frame it was, the level of organization. And, you know, because teachings can be relevant, the teachings aren't just to save you as an individual. They're to build a society. They're to build a civilization. So the way that I I guess I would see it is that every civilization in the world has a religion behind it. It's sort of like the operating system. You Mm -hmm. know, if it gets really fuzzy and messed up, you can have apps that just don't work anymore. And if you don't update it every once in a while, the apps don't work, you know, even if they would otherwise, you know, be great. Yeah, you have to renew your software license
0: and uh, upgrade
1: at some point, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And so, you know, what, what, you know, Judaism may have needed, you know, in 500 BC, you know, probably different than what the Roman Empire needed in the first century AD. Or the collapse of the ancient civilizations, you know, around like, what, the 500s, 600s, when everything Mm -hmm. was falling apart, gigantic civil wars, insane plagues. People don't realize, like, sort of the background to Islam coming out as a religion. The world was just in free fall. It was a crazy time. There's some great books on it I would definitely encourage people to read. So it's like every religion kind of was coming out of some period, and God was trying to address that period. And so for specifically the Baha'i faith, like, it's talking about these teachings – that Baha'u'llah gave us that are to build a new world society on, in some sense, like the decline of an old one, like the way that we have, like you can see it right now, the way the world is, you have the Western sort of the Western world, you have the Eastern world and you have different parts of it and they're all trying to move forward, but it's not quite working. We don't really have like the operating system to make use another, the bad analogy to really mm-hmm. kind of bind humanity together and take us forward to something. And you can have yeah. far, you could have really farsighted people who are trying to build things you can have you know terrorist groups that are trying to tear people back down. But yes. there needs to be something that can binds us together, and to some extent, that's what the Baha'i faith is all about. And I mm-hmm. found that you know very compelling, especially as a 15, 16 year old looking at the world through fresh eyes. Yeah,
0: very fascinating. I'm curious, uh, I agree with what you're saying, and it reminds me of something, um, and I've only recently started studying this. Um, in my most recent book, I have a chapter on this um, about spiral dynamics. Do you know what that is?
1: I feel like I've read some of it. Um, yeah, no, I would recommend you. Books. It sounds
0: like that it sounds like you're already on that. So, like you would, I think, if you read on um, spiral dynamics, um, you would probably you would already get it. You'd be like, ah, there you go, click. You, somebody else has talked about the same thing, um, and just expressing it in different terms. Um, yeah, and I don't want to. I, I probably shouldn't get too deep into it, but essentially, it's a it's a theory um, that looks at human development of human consciousness. And you can, you can map it from history. So you go back to like the stone age, um, and then you can trace human consciousness and development and notice, uh, what it's doing is, is calling out and noticing and, and clarifying, uh, defining the levels of human consciousness that people were at, at the stone age, the bronze age, the iron age, um, uh, you know, the renaissance, you know, uh, the industrial age, uh, all the way up to modern times. And it's a successive uh you know step up in human consciousness from one to the other and you can map them out and they have color codes and all this stuff but it's essentially what you're saying and it's it's acknowledging um on the spiritual level that human consciousness is evolving is progressing is moving to it seems to be anyway hopefully uh if we keep moving into higher levels of human consciousness that eventually embrace the humanity and the divinity of everyone so um we it's not an us and them tribalistic uh, way of thinking. And obviously, we're not there yet. You can look at the news uh, and see what's <laughs> going on politically and uh, around the world. Things, you know, uh, we're not there yet, obviously. And it's a bit of two steps forward, one step back as well. Like we don't, we're not consistent with it. Um, and I feel like we're in a stepping back moment right now. But it's, it's much in line with what you're saying. So yeah, really fascinating. Anyone's curious about it. My book is Sola Deus. You can check it out. It says a whole chapter on that. Um, But yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think um, humanity has had successive levels of understanding and um, different needs spiritually, psychologically um, to survive as a species and as a society and as culture. Um, And hopefully it is moving in a, in a forward direction. I, I hope that's true um but yeah that's cool and it, real quick is there anything caleb um now that you are behind that you appreciate about christianity
1: yeah sorry i forgot to answer that on the other one i that's think okay. i was probably talking on too long anyway no you're right no so I, I think part of the tradition that i, I do miss is that like, and, and i think a lot of sort of people in the ex world probably find this super lame but i really miss the music like i, I miss you know <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I understand, like, you know, I, my dad goes to a a prominent mega church in uh north uh north Georgia and like I don't think it's that bad of one as far as it's, as far as these things go. But you know, they have a great band and you, you can find that yeah. with some other churches as well. And you know, I, I think they do a great job, man. I mean it's like yeah, it's cheesy, you know. But at yes. the same time, it's like it's it's cheesy that I can sit with. Um, you know, it's just not the same you don't have the smoke machines, you know, with behind <laughs>
0: Yeah. The Baha'i don't, they don't have lasers and smoke machines and yeah.
1: (laughs) Not not yet. Right. You think we should be Uh, there by now.
0: Give them time. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you, Caleb. That's, that's awesome. So Greg, I want to ask you the same thing. Um, You know, uh, what was it that compelled you uh, to move in this direction? And so I think it's Taoism, right? Or Taoism that you, you have embraced at this moment. Uh, Well, that not, it's not even just that. So I want you to explain that because I know it's, it's sort of that plus, so You went from Baptocostal to another sort of hybrid, right? So talk about that a little bit.
2: So, um, yeah, I went from Baptocostal to, um, I never, I never actually used the word Christo pagan. Uh-huh. Um, I never used that word, but as I, as well, I just relation, you just, I did. just, well, yeah, I just did. Didn't <laughs> I? Um, I probably, I never would have at the time, um, but as I formed relationships with Wiccans and uh, others who I had been warned against and who I was warning other people against, uh, I, I just, I became really attracted to the nature-centered uh, aspect of their mm. faith.
3: Yeah.
2: Um And I never left Christianity. Jesus, Jesus was always my Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I... I found myself uh, taking walks in the woods and communing with the the nature spirits that were all around me and uh, uh, having communion under the light of the full moon, lighting multiple, you know, candles all around me, casting a circle, like anybody observing me, not knowing, you know, what I was doing. Would have seen it as uh, oh this this is a, a solitary Wiccan, um, but it was all in, in a Christian context. So what I think moved me from that? Well, let me let me backtrack. Um, so the nature the nature centered aspect was really what drew me to that. Um, but paganism. Taught me a lot about Christianity, and it was through paganism that I became aware of nature-based Christianity. It was through well, paganism that I discovered Celtic Christianity, mm. um, you know. So, or or the the life and the teachings and the way of Saint Francis of Assisi. Yes, uh, this nature-based Christianity in which Francis talked about brother sun and sister moon and uh, he, he preached to the birds and, you know, so um, neo-paganism became a way for me to uh, embrace nature, but it also led me back to those nature centered aspects of my own faith. Interesting. At the same time that I was practicing all these things, uh, I was also heavily influenced by Taoism, and Taoism came to me in the ninth grade uh, in world history class. So we we read this amazing book. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called The Tao of Pooh. Uh, P-O-O-H. Oh, okay Yes, I've seen it's, that. Yes. It's it's Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> uh, and Benjamin Hoff wrote this amazing book. And the uh, the sequel to it is The Day, but that's spelled T E. Which is a, a Taoist concept. It's called the Day of Piglet, so that's the sequel. So the Tao of Pooh and the Day of Piglet, uh, and Pooh becomes this this um, example of what it means to live according to the Tao or the flow of the universe, the way of the universe. Wow! So um,
3: I was going to say,
0: can I just say real quick? Uh, it sounds to me like you had a very subversive ninth grade teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: I did you put
0: that I sur- into the curriculum there. I'm pretty sure that's not uh, that's not part of the state sponsored.
2: <laughs> we we studied world religions. Uh, we studied so many world religions in ninth grade history class. The wow. idea was, in order to understand world history, you have yeah. to understand world culture. In order to understand world culture, you have to understand world religions. Beautiful. So so it was really ninth grade history that prompted the degree that I would later get in world religions. Mm. Um, For me, Taoism and Christianity are just, um, well, they're like the left hand and the right hand, or maybe I'll just say they're like the yin and they're like the yang Uh of, of my, of my spirituality. Um, Fred talking about uh, this, this merging of Christianity and Hinduism Uh, There was also, early in the days of Christianity, uh, Christianity went to China and had uh, this amazing relationship with Taoism. Um, There's something called the the Jesus Sutras. Uh, Yes. These were scriptures that were written, they're Christian scriptures, but they were written from uh, a perspective of of Taoism being a a heavy influence there. So so in China, Christianity and, and Taoism grew up together um so for me christianity and Taoism currently are kind of like this yin and this yang that that all swirl together Mm, that's really beautiful yeah i love that i think that keith i think that um for me it's always been impossible to have one view of who god is or what god is Mm -hmm. um Taoism allows me to see God, uh, the yin might be to see God as the force. If I were to Uh, use that, that term Um, by the way, George Lucas was heavily influenced by Taoism. So, so I'm not borrowing some from star Wars. I'm just making that reference, but, um, but the yin side, that, that black side of the yin yang symbol would be viewing God as more as that, the force Mm -hmm. and the yang side that that white side would be um christianity and and viewing god as personal yes uh, someone with whom we can have a relationship and i think that both of those things can be true at once yes so if if i can give an example um, please, please do because this is,
0: this is right I, in line by the way with exactly where i'm at at the moment personally so i i can't wait to hear what you're going to say
2: yeah I, I go through um I'm a behavioral health specialist now. I, I ministered in churches for 26 years, but now I'm a behavioral health specialist. I work with folks who are experiencing homelessness. I go into a lot of courtrooms. I was just in court earlier today. And I always have to take this thing out of my pocket before I go into uh, court. And for those who can't see, I'm holding up a um, an instrument that the, the guards at the courtroom might not like to have in my pocket. And so if it goes, if the metal detector goes off, the guard could say, oh, you're carrying a knife. And I might say, <laughs> that's not a <annoying."> knife. <laughs> I might say, uh, no, that, that's a screwdriver.
0: Right. Cause you hold on, for, right? you we're not on video for people listening. So you, you're holding right. up a Swiss army knife. So yeah, multiple. I'm holding multiple up a Swiss tools.
2: army knife. Yes. Yep. Um, I'd say that's that's a a screwdriver, and somebody else might say, no, it's it's a corkscrew, and somebody Mm -hmm. else might say, no, it's a leather punch, and somebody else might say, no, it's a bottle opener. And the truth is, this is a Victory Knox Swiss Army Ranger Grip 61, Mm -hmm. and that means nothing to most people. If I were to say a Victory Knox Swiss Army uh, Ranger Grip 61, that means nothing. Right. Um, And so... To address the nothingness of what that means, Taoism mm-hmm. says the Tao that can be described is not the Tao. Right. Or or as Buddhism would say, if you see the Buddha, kill him. Yes. Because if you if you meet Buddha, you haven't met Buddha. <laughs> Right. Yeah. There's Augustine, something missing. Augustine
0: says something similar. Augustine actually said, and I'm not a fan of Augustine, but one of the few things he says that I think is great, he said something like that, if if you um if you can describe
2: God, it's not God. Exactly. Right. Which I think is is why Jesus said, if you hear them say, Look, there he is on the mountain, don't yeah. go there. Yep. That's mm-hmm. not where I am. That's right. And in the Gospel of Thomas. You know, Jesus says, split open a piece of wood and you're going to find me there. Look under right. a rock. You're going to find me there. That's right. Uh, God is never what you think God is. The Tao mm-hmm. is not what you think the Tao is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's bigger. And so for me yeah. to relate to God in a Christian way, uh, in, in you know, to, to have a relationship, personal relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I can do that. Mm hmm. And I can relate to God in that way. But I can also relate to God um, as the one in whom we live and move and have our yes. being. Yes. You
3: know,
2: uh, the sort of that impersonal uh, force that binds the galaxy together, yes. as George Lucas would say.
0: Mm-hmm. And Paul, so, Paul I also think, said, right? Christ and, is the, the holds all things together. That's right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, for me, that's, that's where I am. Uh, and that's what I appreciate about both neo-paganism and Taoism is that they actually don't even argue about right. what is the correct doctrine. Right. You know,
0: yeah. I love it's that. Just I, about. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, it's so funny because this is exactly where I'm at personally, like um, embracing the mystery of God. And we've all kind of said this, uh, Fred, I think you alluded to this, Caleb, you've alluded to this and, and and Greg as well, that when we're talking about God, we're talking about by definition a being that, transcends human comprehension, right? God is not a being we can define. You can't draw a picture of him on a napkin. You you can't, again, because if whatever that would be, it might be something, but it isn't God. Um, and so if we uh, just admit that when we're talking about um, theology, which is God, uh, an understanding or a description of God, we're, we're talking about something that right off the bat, we can't explain. And that, that's that been one of my complaints about the evangelical Christianity I grew up with because it would it would affirm that. It would say that. It would say, yes, this is true. God transcends human knowledge, right? God is higher and wider and longer and deeper and it transcends human knowledge. Yes, Paul says this in Ephesians. And now let me tell you all about him. And, you know, let me explain the Trinity and let me explain to you how this works and that works and everything. I'm like, what are you doing? You, know, you, you just contradicted what you said you believed about God. And so for me, embracing this mystery of God, which opens my hand and now allows me to say, I don't have to have it all figured out because I can't, it's not possible, right? It, it's, it's affirming there is a God. I believe that, that there is a God and it is a God. I think what's helped me is to recognize that knowing God is not about having this right information. It's not being able to define it or draw it or, ma- or, or graph it or map it in some, in any way, because that's impossible. But it, I, But I would still say, I would affirm we can know God I just, when I say no, I mean, um, again, there's two Greek words, uh, episteme, which is that kind of knowledge, information. Um, but then there's another Greek word called gnosko, which is experiential. It's it, the, it's, it's the knowing of God. It's the same kind of word you use when you talk about how a, a husband knows his wife and she conceives a new life within her. Um, that's knowing, but it has nothing to do with information, right? It's, it's all about this experience. So I say. Um, that it's 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 a knowing of god that you would be completely unable to explain but more than capable of experiencing and i think that's what we're kind of all alluding to in some ways here um and i love too, the way you've talked about greg this sort of both and uh way of uh, approaching god as the yin the yang the the um a god that is at one point sort of the force this unknowing kind of you know being but at the same time, a God that is relational. And and it's somehow um, they're both true. It's sort of panentheism and pantheism. It's not one or the other. It's sort of both. And can I explain it? No, but that's what I just said. <laughs> God is not something we can explain. Um, and as an evangelical Christian, I grew up being totally comfortable not being able to fully explain the Trinity, uh, like, you know, to say things that seemed counterintuitive and like, how could this possibly be? And just say, it's a mystery. And I would say the same about this kind of thing too it's it's not something I can explain, and I don't feel any need to explain it so yeah, I love that uh, Fred, and the time we have left, um tell us a little bit uh, you for you um what was it about uh coming from Catholicism uh, into Hinduism? what compelled you about Hinduism and now, as a Hindu, what compels you about Catholicism? oh, hold on you want i I apologize i I have you on mute,
4: okay. There you go. Uh, There's a a couple of things. Uh, First of all, when I was very young, I'm talking about four, five, six years old, I would spontaneously meditate. I would just sit down and I would go into a meditative state. And if you asked me, if you walked in the room and there I was sitting in a chair, engaged in that if you asked me what i was doing i would have no idea what to tell you
3: Mm.
4: but i did it and then all of a sudden i stopped doing it but i never forgot that i did that and then um now i realize i'm the old man in this in this conversation i don't know how many of you remember the beatles um (laughs) but whatever happened to
0: those guys yeah (laughs)
4: there's something insurance now they're really they did well for themselves uh no um when the Beatles went to india that struck a chord and i didn't know why it struck a chord but they were on a spiritual search yeah and uh it was very profound now i was and is and am rather A a major Beatles fan but it wasn't just because the Beatles did it because the year before they went to India on this retreat they were involved in psychedelic drugs and that was all the big headlines the Beatles are out taking LSD and all of this and I was repulsed by that I I was have always been sort of anti-drug so that disappointed me about them Mm -hmm. then when they go to India again it was just I could not explain it. It just, it resonated with me. Shortly after that, and I was a very religious kid, I I really loved my Catholicism, but I started asking the big questions and not getting answers that resonated with me. So I decided that I wasn't going to make a big deal of it. I wasn't going to say, Mom, Dad, take me out of my Catholic school. Mom, Dad, I'm not going to mass with you anymore. Nothing like that. I just, I still loved Jesus. But I couldn't reconcile uh, uh, eternal hell for people who didn't belong. And, you know, the, the concept of God, the old man in the sky, just, just didn't work for me anymore. Even Jesus being co-equal with the Father, I had a hard time with. But I did not know what to replace that with. Right. I just, okay. So I just put all this stuff on the shelf and say, okay, this is how I'm going to express my faith by believing what I, what I can believe as opposed yeah. to what I should believe. And then I took a world's religions class in my Catholic high school and was taught by a very progressive uh, uh, teacher. And for some reason, when we got to Hinduism, I, I really enjoyed learning about all the religions. But when we got to Hinduism, there was just something there that, that spoke to me. Uh, and so I took a self-directed uh, field trip to the only Hindu temple that was in Detroit in 1970. And I I had a deeply profound experience there. Now, admittedly, Hmm. some of that experience was the exotica of it. uh, Hindu temples are incredibly colorful. Um, uh, There was wonderful chanting, women dressed in saris, uh, all of this. And then at the end of the service that I attended... There was a meal, and I'd never had Indian food before.
0: Oh, well, there you go. And That's it.
4: If, you, if nothing else about that night was going to pull me in, you know, I always say if I was ever going to record a commercial for Hinduism, the tagline would be, Hinduism, come for enlightenment, but stay for dinner. I mean, it, 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 it just the, the whole the whole picture, it just really excited me so yeah. i didn't go home and say mom dad i'm a hindu i mean i was 15 years old right right so i just sort of started uh, um including certain hindu devotional practices into a daily what we call in hinduism a sadhana your your yeah. spiritual practice sitting yeah. down chanting a, a sanskrit mantra reading from uh the gita uh, the bhagavad gita which is one of our scriptures uh, but I'd also still read from the bible uh and it uh so it was really first of all the the belief system really resonated with me, yes. just the idea that we are a part of the divine, not separate from the divine yes uh the idea that everyone is an aspect of the divine and that separation from divinity is merely an illusion that we, the goal of life is to break through that illusion and realize that personally. So that means that I don't have to tell any one of you to forget about what you're doing now and come on in because you're going to be just fine. Right. There's, there's literally no such thing as a wrong religion as long as you know, it teaches a moral code. You don't go around killing people because you think God is telling you to do that, or any any such nonsense. Uh, so the belief system uh, uh, appealed to me. Oh, and the idea of of uh, karma and reincarnation made perfect sense. I didn't I didn't have to uh, uh, work to accept that. And then um, the the actual practices that I learned later in life, the meditation practice, uh, chanting. Uh, and and all of that, taking it to a deeper level, and having the experience of going into a deep meditation, and and feeling that divinity mm-hmm. uh, in and around me, and then recognizing it in other people, it's it's no longer a platitude, right? It's 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 genuine. Yeah. I see divinity in other people, even when they're jerks. That's right. the trick, yeah. right? When when they when they uh, uh, do things that are, well, horrible sometimes. Right. And 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 know that, what, not excusing that, that terrible action,
3: right. but
4: still understanding that at the core, there is a divine being. It yeah. may be asleep. It may take a long time to wake up, but mm-hmm. at some point, if not in this lifetime, in a future lifetime, it will blossom. Uh, so those are the things that, that compelled me and and still maintain a hold on me. Yeah. Uh, and and also to uh, one other thing. So for instance, in evangelical Christianity, uh, more so than Catholicism, but you, can, you could include Catholicism in this. Maturing, if if your if your personal theology matures and takes you in different directions, you have parameters, and if you want to maintain uh, uh, your uh, your membership in good standing. You can't go outside of these parameters. Yes. Right. Um, and in Hindu, I don't even know if you can call them parameters. Right. Uh, but I often say that Hinduism is not a faith-based faith. So, for instance, if a Christian says, "I no longer believe in the physical resurrection. I believe it's a metaphor." Uh, other Christians who find that out that you're believing this might really be concerned about your your eternal fate. I can say, you know, I think reincarnation is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. And so if somebody comes up to me, if a Hindu comes to me and says, "Uh, you know, Fred, I'm just having a hard time with reincarnation. I just think it's a metaphor. I just think it's a story that people told back then, but I don't believe it exists. I have no responsibility to try to talk that person into believing in reincarnation right because nothing bad will happen to him or her if if they do if they don't believe right. in this that or the other thing yep. um, so those those are the those are the things that compel me to maintain my identity and you know if you were to ask me the difference between my personal theology today versus my personal theology you know 20 years ago well it's still hindu but my gosh there are significant differences and nobody is there to say eh, you shouldn't be should, don't go there fred don't go there
0: <laughs> right right that's and, great and,
4: I, I, and and real quick i i tried to uh say this when you were having that conversation Uh, About not being able to define divinity and and all of that Um, But one of one of our uh, sayings is the truth repeated is a lie
3: Mm. Which
4: means which means I can have an experience of truth with a capital T But if I try to relate that to you Then it doesn't work. Something is going to be missing. Yes from I can't Just say it to you and go. Oh, that's truth.
0: Right. That's exactly right. I love that. I love that. Guys, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I want to thank each of you for your time and your contribution, not only to the, um, to the book, but also, um, you know, to this conversation. And so let's wrap it up. I want to say real quick, uh, I give you a chance to say, tell us a little bit about your, tell us where people can find you. Uh, if you're online, you have a, a book, a podcast, a, you know, a website, something mm-hmm. like that, a blog, um, uh, Fred, why don't you start, and then Greg, and then Caleb, uh, let us know.
4: Sure. Well, like everybody here, I'm a contributor to Pathios, so you can find me uh, in the uh, links dealing with Hinduism. I also I host a radio show on uh, the NPR affiliate in Grand Rapids, Michigan, WGvu, where you can listen online by by simply going to the site. And after our episodes air locally. Uh, they are uploaded as podcasts. So if you look for uh, Common Threads Interfaith Dialogue, you have to use all of those words because Common Threads is a very yeah. common podcast title. Common Threads Interfaith Dialogue. It's, uh, we've got uh, 300 episodes in our archives, and uh, you can get them on any any major platform, even the minor ones.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Greg? Well, folks can find me on Pathios and um, that's basically where folks can find me. I'm working <laughs> okay. on a book uh, working on, a book, uh, on uh, Taoist Christianity that uh, hopefully there will be a publisher. That yes, will be interested I think in I, I know Keith.
0: one. I think I know yes. one that might be interested, yes.
2: <laughs> so folks will be able to find me there shortly.
0: Awesome. So, um,
2: so that's where folks can find me. Thanks. Awesome. Caleb?
1: Yep. So I, I used to blog quite a lot, but um basically doing a PhD has made that completely impossible. Plus, keep ha- we keep having kids, which sets that back <laughs> even farther. So my PhD, hopefully will be finished at the end of next year and then try to publish my thesis, you know, as a book. Um, i probably working some other stuff, probably mostly academic, but not completely. So at this moment, I, I don't actually have anything to send anybody to. Um, I, I don't actually, I don't have a blog on Patheos or anything. Um, You can find me at uh, the university of edinburgh's website and you can find a list of my research and and the things that i'm interested in and and where i'm going to try to contribute in the future
0: awesome so great well thank you all for contributing to this conversation and this episode of the second cup with keith um again the book is sitting in the shade of another tree it's available now on amazon uh on kindle and paperback um possibly soon on audible who knows uh keep your fingers crossed and uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. Thank you for supporting the podcast. And we'll see you next time on Second Cup with Keith.